so far, at least in your experience, ChatGPT is sort of like the idiot intern. Recock your broken pistol and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. This is episode 123, and my name is Randy. And my name is Arco. And we're not alone today. We're joined by our good friend Ian Schultz. Ian Schultz, sorry. Uh, also known online as Psychotronic Cinema. It's good to have you again, sir. How are things? Uh, okay, I'm looking forward to talking about... Uh... Somewhat underrated sort of film, The Good Juvenile. Cool. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. It, yes, quite underrated. Um, all right. So it's a new month here. We are June 2023, new Soderbergh. But first, plugs. Good thing plugs. I said, good thing I said first in between those words is what I was just going to say. Yes. So, uh, but first, plugs. New month, new theme, I guess, sort of. It's a little bit of an odd month that we have here lined up for June. Grand Larson May, or our 90s heist movies, they're behind us now. So our May tie-in, though, on Patreon, Michael Mann's Heat, is available for free for one month until mid-June. And if my dates are correct, that's June 17th. Uh, So go check that out. Um, a little later this month, we're going to be talking about the films of Michael Crichton in our monthly theme. But today, we're going to have our Soderbergh deep cut. We're going to be talking about The Good German. And next week on our Patreon, Soderbergh Conversation, our shallow cut, we're going to be talking about Che. So both parts, Che's one and two. So join us next week on Patreon for that at www.patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. Um, for our monthly Patreon tie-ins this month, uh, we're going to do a bit of a connect the dots type of thing. Connecting to Crichton, we're also talking about Jurassic Park because this was released. Jurassic Park was released 30 years ago this month. Um, and connecting to Jurassic Park via Spielberg and also to the upcoming Indiana Jones release, uh, we're releasing another bonus tie-in this month on Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, Wait, a bonus bonus tie-in? That's what we've done. <laughs> Should I very quickly uh, tell my Jurassic Park story? It was the first film I ever saw. Really? In like, the in the drive-in. And the first time I ever had pizza. Wow. Wow. The double whammy. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big night. How At- old were you? Two, two or three, probably three years old, I would imagine, at that point. Oh, well, so you, it's safe to assume you didn't really see much of Jurassic Park, did you? I, 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 I remember it pretty clearly. I remember having pizza, sitting on top of the, of the car. Do you have any memories of, not like from the film itself? I mean, I've seen it since. I mean, I, 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 I remembered like the dinosaurs and stuff when I was a kid. Cool. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so we are all about the time. And, and also, also, the other thing I remember, and mm-hmm. my, my my mom has always said this was accurate, is they had like a like the sort of doors to Jurassic Park at the drive-in that you kind of drove through. Oh yeah, 
They had like cool. a mock-up. <clears throat> That's very cool. Awesome. So also on Patreon, so the other Patreon entry that we have coming at you is our John Cassavetes marathon entry, and we are going to be discussing his sixth film, Mini and Moskowitz, if I'm not mistaken. I sort of think that's right. Okay. I think so, yeah. This sounds right. So, Sounds yeah. about right, yeah. All that fun on Patreon for the low, low price of $3 a month. That's four fifty Canadian if you're in Canada. Or if you want to just simply make a donation, one-time monetary offering to us, feel free to go ahead. You can do so at www.kofi.com slash uncut gems pod that's ko-fi.com forward slash uncut gems pod or you know what no obligations but if you just want to keep listening to us we appreciate that too so big thank you to everyone who supports us on patreon and otherwise with your likes and your listens thank you so much all right but that's it for the plugs we are now on (laughs) that's it for the plugs folks (laughs) divine uh, unless it's a fairly saucy chuckle from Jacob. all right we're here <laughs> though <like>, but <laughs> plug i mean at this point i was just like i'm sorry you know <laughs> okay i'll replace Turn on my... fucking coming so, i'll replace always, all my scares however ter- terry stamp always <clears throat> scares me all right we're here to talk about steven soderbergh so this is our sixth deep cut episode uh so this month we're going to try to negotiate the good german I'm with you now Tully. how am i supposed to help you lena if you won't help me i would never hurt you Tully. never you can get anything on the black market I already talked to someone, a little lockcock, no legs, but he can run down anything. He can get you on a train out. That's what you want, right? They told me he was dead. One more dead, one not dead. Who would know? Poor fucking stupid Lena. You don't know fucking nothing, do you? The Good German is Soderbergh's 16th feature film. I believe my count is correct. Um, This was written by Paul Atanasio, who wrote Quiz Show, Donnie Brasco, and he has the creator credit on one of the best television series of the 1990s, Homicide Life in the Streets. So there's that. Oh, not Friends? No, not Friends. And Michael Lehman Uh, directed one of the early episodes of that, by the way. I think... Yes, I think I recall that fact. That's anyway. I can't get distracted talking about homicide. That's just a whole other piece with me. Skip it in your pants. Yep. Okay. Um, the Good German is uh, based on a novel written by uh, jo- Joseph Cannon, I believe, and cinematography and is done by Soderbergh here, and so is the editing. So he's wearing multiple hats again, as we've seen throughout this. Uh, filmography uh, sort of ongoing discussion about his work um, different name online for the music though in this project and that's Thomas Newman does the score here the the good German stars George Clooney Kate Blanchett Toby Maguire Bo Bridges Leland Orser and a few other people um, but those are the principles and in the good German 
we find Clooney playing Jake Geismer, a journalist arriving in Germany to cover the Potsdam conference between, this is between Victory in Europe Day and Victory in Japan Day. Um, and more than covering the conference, uh, Geismer ends up investigating his murdered military escort, his driver, Tully, and that's Toby Maguire. Um, in the mix is Clooney's former lover, Lena Brandt, that's Kate Blanchett. As Jake digs further into the murder, he finds himself in an intrigue where no authorities are particularly helpful to him. Everyone is trying to find German rocket scientists. Um, people are trying to get their exit papers, and Lena has all kinds of dark secrets. Um, and there's also a bit of a murder mystery for solving Tully's murder mixed in with a political thriller and a dark period romance, I'll say. So that's the good German. <clears throat> Pardon me. Behind the scenes here, I didn't necessarily find a lot of behind the scenes info here, but I have a few things to say. The good German had a relatively uh, big budget, 30, $32 million budget. At this period of time in the mid 2000s, Clooney and Soderbergh are business partners. So whatever one of them was doing, the other automatically knew what they were up to. So Clooney ends up, I guess, whether he petitioned for this and wanted to do it or he found out about it and said, hey, let me do it, Steve. He falls into the lead role. Um, the film is shot strictly in Hollywood on universal backlots and other local sound stages. Soderbergh uh, planned this as a love letter of sorts to old Hollywood films, specifically Michael Curtitz and Casablanca. Uh, so he meticulously shot and directed The Good German. And this here is a little bit of a different piece because we have found out about Soderbergh that he he doesn't really like storyboards and necessarily overly planning. He's He likes the off-the-cuff experience. So it's a little bit of a different process, but he's done it in other films. So he's doing it in, He's doing it again here. Um, Kafka. Kafka. I would argue Solaris as well, where he's being very strategic and meticulous. But anyway, we'll get into all of that. So his scene coverage here, the cameras and lenses that he are using are close to the era. He's uh, getting his actors to act in sort of the same style as actors of the era, a little bit big, a little bit elevated. Um, he's just getting everyone around him to do their jobs as they would have been doing their jobs in the 40s or 50s. Instead of using modern tungsten lights, Soderbergh is lighting all of the scenes with incandescent light bulbs, for instance. So anyway, this is just done as if, as if Soderbergh himself time traveled back to the 1940s was his goal. So it was shot in color though. It was shot in color just to give him a little bit more flexibility in post. Um, but he did, uh, he did release this in a 1.66 to one ratio. So when this played in theaters that were projecting it properly, it did have the bars on the side of the screen because the screens are 1.85 to one. So anyway, there was that. So, and, yeah, and, this also, is, and also shooting in color for black and white at that time was quite common. This man who wasn't there was also a very similar approach. Yes, yes, absolutely. Did he shoot fact, it on film or did he shoot it digitally, by the way? Because I think this would have been... This was one of, his, one of his... No, no this, this was one of his last film films shot on film. Okay. Yes. That's what I understand, too. Um, all right, he, so... Because he, he, he completely fell in love with digital after Shea. Which is a, which is yes. a, which is yeah. Matt. I mean, yeah. one would argue that he shot full frontal on 
like a digital yeah. consumer digital camera anyway right and he's, he's fooling around with it at this time too like with bubble and you know and a few mm-hmm. other things but anyway kate winslet was originally attached to the project for a while but she dropped out and kate blanchett then suddenly was in um now we've talked about Soderbergh in the past, just a, just a little bit of a comment about Soderbergh during these times. So post traffic, he was super busy producing a lot of films, supporting other filmmakers and helping them launch their careers. He was doing a lot of writing at the time, you know, for him. And he, as I mentioned, he was business partners with Section 8 Productions with George Clooney. Um, but in 2006, Section 8 starts to wind down. Um, because Clooney and Hesloff, they start Smokehouse Productions uh, right around this time, and they launch Leatherheads, uh, Clooney's film Leatherheads, in 2008 as the first Smokehouse Productions. So The Good German is sort of the beginning of the end. I think there there's The Good German in 2006, and then there are three 2007 films for Section 8. They're all in production in 2006. They come out in 2007. And then The Informant comes out in 2009. We'll talk about that before too long as well. Um, And then that's it for Section 8 because Soderbergh had said to himself, well, I want to focus more on directing. But it seemed that Clooney wanted to keep doing the same type of thing, making these smaller, semi-indie films with maybe a little bit of marketable potential, Mm -hmm. these $20 million uh, types of productions that they would be pitching to Warners and Warner's Warner brothers wouldn't know what to do with it. So through their encouragement, they, they started Warner independent films in the early two thousands because Warner independent would sort of take the sales pitches for the 10, $15 million projects that Warner brothers proper wouldn't know what the hell to do with. Um, so anyway, after section eight, Soderbergh wants to put his focus back on directing. Clooney wants to keep doing the same thing. And so he sort of keeps pushing his, uh, pushing his efforts into producing in Smokehouse. So it's really interesting because Smokehouse and Section 8, they both have 17 films under their production. It's really interesting to sort of look at the lists. But at any rate, back to The Good German. Um, the Good German opened in a very limited engagement. It had a five-screen prestige art house release that lasted for a few weeks. Um, it had not too bad in uh, per screen average, 15,000 per screen, not bad, but then it was only downhill after the first couple of weeks. It was never released on more than 66 screens. It made a little over 1 million in North America, not quite 5 million in the rest of the world. So a little less than $6 million. It had a $32 million budget. It, it was 50 screens in the UK. So see also small there. So mm-hmm. yeah, it just, this is a film that really, it, it sort of crashed and, and burned. It had a very mixed response critically. You know, there were a lot of comments. This is style over substance, Stephen. That was a very common refrain. Um, Richard Roper, Lisa Schwartzbaum from Entertainment Weekly, Peter Travers from Rolling Stone, they liked it. And, you know, a lot of people found good things to say about it. Um, but a lot of people thought style over substance. Uh, Jay Hoberman from The Village Voice, he said, The Good German is seriously deficient in stars, star power, and narrative excitement. The movie is lovingly framed, carefully lit, but fatally insipid. And so this style versus substance thing is a very, very common discussion point. But that brings us to us. 
What do you fellows think of the good German? Ian, want to start us off? Uh, I had not seen it in a very long time. I saw it when it, I, I, I imported it from Thailand because back around this time, there was a online DVD place where you could buy imports for really cheap, including US ones. Um, and I think it may have not even came out in the UK by that point. I really liked it at the time. I had not revisited it um, since. Um, I think uh, one of the issues with the film is people compare it too much to Casablanca. I think it's far more the third man he was going for. But I think the poster, which is obviously Casablanca, mm-hmm. kind of does it a disservice. Uh, and it's not like a sort of... The romance stuff is really not that important to the film at all, in a way. Um, it's more about the sort of underbelly of, of Berlin when the war is coming to uh, an end um, and all the sort of black market dealings going on and the sort of conspiracies, which is far closer to the third man than it is Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I think it's a, I think if it was came out today, it would do a lot better than it did when it came out back then. I think if it comes out today, it's like Mank, and that's... <laughs> So it's going to go straight to Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Um, people on Twitter are going to go like, look at that, it's black and white, look at that, it's fancy, and then forget about it like a week later. Just <laughs> Netflix releases for you. Anyway. Yeah, what about you? I liked it quite a bit. I've seen it before. I was just about checking on Letterboxd. Last time I saw it was 2016. So a while ago, I gave it four and a half out of five. Not much Ooh. has changed since then, and I did. I remember at, at the time. At the time, I remember connecting this to Casablanca, and that's necessary. Not necessarily based on the poster, but more or less on the sort of the final images of the film, because it kind of mm-hmm. stays you sp- specifically because of what's revealed in the final scenes, because there's a lot that's be that's being said, uh, and then just a few images. The only thing that's kind of just missing in there is like I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Like that can it's it's framed in a very specific way. Uh, but watching this now, totally agree that there is way more Orson Welles and there's than there's Curtis in there. But it's Kel general- Reed. Kel Reed directed. He, Orson mm. Welles is only starred in it, and it was Kel oh, Reed sorry, yeah, who directed it. it. But it, but Big in general, there is. But there is a lot of Orson Welles in it. Like if you think about how he frames, how he moves the camera, the, sh- the, the expressionist shadow, it, it, it's a, there is a lot of uh, of Citizen Kane even in this, right? And there's a lot of Billy Wilder in it. It's a it's like a hodgepodge of the sort of golden era of Hollywood. Like it looks like the, like we've been talking about this that this is like Soderbergh has this sort of mo of. Uh, you know, like every, every film is a bit of a different beast because he doesn't. He wants to kind of check off off the list. Like, I want to do a film like this, you know. And I kind of feel like this is one of those. Like, this is my golden age Hollywood picture. I want to do. I want to, and 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 it's a, again like a new wave challenge for him. Isn't like I'm going to do it in the style and in, in using the tools of these people, right? So he's going to pick up the 32 mil lens. Uh, he's going to stage it in a way. That has that you have to kind of get things. Like he's gonna edit in in camera like Billy Wilder would, so that you know, like just to assume that someone's gonna ruin my editing, even though he's editing it himself, you know. So I, I kind of just took it because it, it 
in in a way, it's it is a movie that the foreign affair by Billy Wilder's foreign affair could have been if it had an interesting intrigue as opposed to just a rom com in it. A rom com in it, because there's there's this sort of bit in the film. Because for me, the well, there's there are two two things to the film, two parts to the film. I appreciate it as the sort of again this you know Soderbergh doing giving himself a, an artistic challenge because I enjoy the challenge, especially that he. As when you, Randy, when you mentioned that Kate Winslet was supposed to take the uh, role of Lena Brandt, and I'm just thinking to myself, this is such a perfect casting for Kate Blanchett because she looks like Marlena Dietrich, like like spitting image almost. It's fun. It's I, I don't know why, but but it feels like this would have been the I don't know perfect casting, and turns out like you know he wanted Kate Winslet for it anyway. But for me, the second part of the film is the story, and the, and and the story is quite a bit nuanced. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, we had a conversation about a movie like this because this is based on a book that's um, fairly modern. I think the book's not necessarily too old. It's two thousand one. Yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a book written by a guy who's just writing about a period he doesn't really relate to. And I'm just saying, is this like the Black Dahlia when we just talked about this sort of James Elroy sort of noir from the 80s, but then referring to the 40s. And it's kind of like a similar vibe, only this this time I'm vibing with this much better because the story is just the intrigue is much, much more interesting to me. And also what's in between the lines of dialogue or just woven into it, there's a conversation about these sort of... Uh, the, the sort of the gray area of the time of you know how they were smuggling Nazis out of Germany to just you know uh, or how these sort of the these sort of big powers were sort of at play with each other and then small people were kind of trapped in and everyone kind of just there was this sort of like one man every man for himself sort of thing going on and I really find it compelling and in that also if you, when, when you apply all these two parts, are in, and then you also have George Clooney, who's like this sort of modern movie star, and he looks and feels kind of like he's Cary Grant. Fast, I, I just, I, I just like this movie a lot. I'm just gonna leave it there because I'm. This is, this is me rambling. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop now. I'm gonna uh, yield the floor, Randy. How about you? So this was a first time watch for me. I'd never seen this before, um, and. I really didn't like it. So a week or so ago, I watched it and then I got distracted. I only watched half of it. And then I watched it again a couple of days ago. And I, I find this, the, the details in here, especially in, once you get, because this is a story in three acts. We'll get into it. But the, the second act is introduced <clears throat> by a, a narration by Clooney. And once this act takes over, I find the, the plot is convoluted in a way that I can't invest in what's going on. I don't necessarily feel any uh, appeal to the the characters in here or the performances. So all I ever see in this film is Soderbergh's experiment, which is cool, and I'm very glad that he did it because um, it's you know it's gorgeous, interesting filmmaking. Uh, from moment to moment, but I'm not invested in anything. All I ever see is this experiment. And on the whole, I think it's just, it's just not working. It's not doing it for me. It's, it's like uh, Ocean's 11, which we talked about and 12 and 13, they're Rat Pack movies. And, you know, I, I don't like the Rat Pack Ocean's 11, 
But to me, Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13, they're just, they're truly Rat Pack movies. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Soderbergh is doing. He's they're just crap making pack these movies. And, uh, so I agree. The crap. They're experiments that aren't really working. And uh, here, it's an experiment that I appreciate, but it's not really working. There's some good stuff in here. We'll get to it. But largely, uh, I, I don't feel a love. A lot of the points, like the world building stuff, I'm sort of interested in. And, and this is, uh, you know, there's some fascinating sort of history that we delve into here. Filmmaking is gorgeous, but I'm just not along for the ride with these these characters because it's it's getting too convoluted in a way that plot points and things that are happening are thrown at me and I don't really care. And, you know, maybe we'll explore this and I'll find out, like, whose fault is this? Is this the story's fault? Is this my fault? Maybe it's my fault. I don't know. But we'll we'll get into that. Um, Total I'll... fucking bullshit. Sorry. <laughs> I had it prepared specifically for this evening. <laughs> it's a, such a sadness. Exactly. That's how I feel, that I, I can't appreciate this. Yeah. Let me lead the proceedings. Bullshit. <laughs> uh, I'll lead things here with a, a quote from Soderbergh, because he said, um, for the Get good real. German, I will get real right now. For the good German to succeed commercially, critics needed to be on board with it. They weren't. They didn't get what I was trying to do. My error was assuming that if people understood what I was trying, that they would like it. Uh, I would argue that my failures have been more conceptual than uh, on an execution level. So my, my question is this, and you guys each sort of alluded to it, but maybe we'll just dig a little deeper into this idea of what exactly is Soderbergh trying to accomplish with this? Well, I think he's trying to make a 1940s film but with modern sensibilities because, you know, they swear they have sets. It's more violent than you would kick it away with. And, you know, you now know stuff about the war that you didn't know back then. So there's an irony to aspects of it. I'd say mm. so my kind of my thinking is kind of similar on this as in like he's making a 1940s film um yeah my okay well I, I like using comparisons is for me this like whenever you hear Tarantino talk about De Palma in relation to Hitchcock as in like De Palma was making movies that Hitchcock could not make because they wouldn't let him happen let, let him let him make movies like this because of the time Right, so Soderbergh's making a Michael Curtiz or a Norson Wells film. Which I, I think Tarantino is full of shit on that. But. I mean, yeah, but like Hitchcock would never be able to get away with like full-on nudity and violence. Like, because, like, oh, I don't oh, know, people oh, in like oh, yeah. Universal would say, like, yeah, absolutely fucking yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, but, but I also would say that the thing that he's missing is he's a more subtle filmmaker, there's way more layers to it and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, but, but just, no, it's just in, gen- in general terms of how he's he was approaching genres just i don't want to derail just to talk about hitchcock and the palm it's just like what i think he, he's doing in here soderbergh is actually making this movie that say like a billy wilder if you wanted to make a movie about the operation per- paperclip about how um american government w- was ship was shipping out f- ardent nazis to just you know like to, to establish what we now know as nasa right um or how how people were selling themselves for uh, for pennies and prostituting themselves to to survive or selling their fellow men and women just to survive and during like these were tough topics to talk about and like no one would have let it happen 
Yeah, or no one would be able to show you like the sort of I don't know, like the gentleman's club in Berlin when people are just prostituting themselves like willy nilly, right? Um, so he's kind of doing that, just giving you the movies, the kind of movie that 1940s should have been giving you if they, uh, if, if the uh, censorship wasn't there. I think that's the experiment. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what he's doing. But I would say it's it's quite a bit more than that, just given how much he invests. So Soderbergh said. Like and this is a quote that this is a film, this is the film of what uh, he called this the film that Michael Curtis would do if Michael Curtis could do whatever the hell he wanted. That's um, kind of what I what I tried to yeah, say. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think you're sort of uh, bang on that. But I think like he he takes us to another level where he's um, as a process of how he actually makes films himself. I think that he's taking on this whole experiment because. We're going to use different lights. We're going to operate in the the studios in the back lots. And we're going to, you know, shoot in the way that they used to shoot and use the old equipment. Like he's taking this to a whole other degree. It's not just a matter of doing what Michael Curtis could do, you know, just by adding profanity and doggy style sex. Like really there's more that he's investing in his experiment than just <laughs> putting in the R-rated stuff. Wait, hold on. Just let's ask just when was doggy style sex invented? <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's the 60s. <laughs> no, it's just if he just if he didn't go the whole way, as in like invest in the lenses, the lighting, and everything. Um, I suppose the only concession you could say he filmed in color because it was easier to process it, right? Through a digital mm-hmm. intermediate that way, then shoot monochrome and then costume people. I mean, he still had to costume people accordingly, yeah. right? But yeah. I just think if he didn't do that, that he wouldn't be able with to say with just with hand on heart, it's like, oh, I'm trying to make a Michael Curtis film that the way he would have done it if he had a had had, had a free reign because he wouldn't be using the same tools, right? So he's trying to kind of get close to this, I suppose, right? Is this, it's subversive, but do you think like that's his goal is to be sub, subverting sort of the f- film noir 40s genre? Or is it just, is he just trying to make his own? I'm not sure if he's trying to subvert it. I would say he's trying to kind of show you what the noir genre was. Like, if you think about movies were, were like that because they were heavily censored because Americans are prudes. And if you picked up the pulp novels, they were saucy as <laughs> so, so, you know, so th- he's giving you the real treatment of what these books should have been had they been adapted in the way that they should have, right? Although the book he's adapting from is from 2001, right? So, but then like, it gives you the, the sort of the flavor of like, you know, when we talked about the Black Dahlia, for instance, just mm-hmm. like, you know, this will be in the 40s would have looked differently. Or no, so to that effect, right? So he's he's trying to emulate what noir films should have looked like had the prudes not run Hollywood. That's kind of how I see it. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, what drives this script? So because for me, <laughs> what a question. <laughs> Well, I well, one don't thing, connect to these characters, you know. I, I'm I'm curious who brought the book to who. If it was Clooney to Soderbergh or Soderbergh to Clooney, because I fe- I feel like this could have been something that Clooney was thinking of directing and then passed it to Soderbergh. 
was this after his uh, Clooney's first film or? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, well, it was when was Confessions? Two thousand three. Okay, so this was a little mm-hmm. bit after. Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I, I don't know. It obviously came to Section Eight somehow. Um, you know what? Regardless, it, it does feel though that Soderbergh was such a, an experiment guy, and we've talked about him being you know, a cinephile and a film historian and wanting to bring old cinema, other cinema, uh, indie cinema to the mainstream, it it sort of makes sense that he would want to do this. And even if there's any type of talk of Clooney wanting to do it, um, it sounds like that, you know, Soderbergh would be all over this. And no, I want this. I want this for me. Um, I mean, but it is an interesting connection to Good Luck, Good Night. Is that came, after 2006? No, no, came out before. Or just so it was the year before. Yeah. So they're both attracted to this material and they both have this, this sort of edge to them. But then there's the, uh, you could you could imagine that Clooney would have brought it to him because if you look at the story, I mean, the book just as it is, is not a Michael Cortez film, right? It's just a book. It's just a noir story set in the forties. Right. Right. And in, in Berlin, wherever. Yeah. It's like a, so you could imagine that this is something that's just, thing. Yeah, but then you could you could see like Clooney gravitating to it because he would probably see it directing it and then starring in it because it's heavily driven by this central character who's this sort of this leading man and he's probably just fashioning himself in that manner. So he could probably just gravitated by based ba- gravitate to it based on the fact that he'd like to be this character, and then he's bringing it to Soderbergh and Soderbergh goes goes like, well, I could do this. Actually, I could just do it like this. I could make it a challenge for myself, you know. Like I can see him even coming up with with this with this shtick on like off like off the cuff, like while he's speaking to the clone, you know. But, like but, but then the other thing is, yeah. like Clooney did that failsafe TV movie, which I think he originated that with Stephen Frears directed, which was done as a like a live TV, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, Playhouse sixty type of thing a few years before, also in black and white. So. I have a feeling it might have been something that Clooney, you know, got the book at an airport bookshop, read it on the plane, and was like, mm-hmm. oh, so, you know, mm-hmm. I just did a black and white film with Stephen. Why don't you go do a black and white film? Here's a book that would make, and you can do mm-hmm. some weird experimental shit with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And on this, um, do you guys feel, you know, Atanasio enough to make any comments? Like, does, does his voice come through? What do you think he brings to, to this? I, I mean, I, I think it was just a, a job. I mean, he, it's, it's never been, they've never worked with Soderbergh since. So it's, you know, Soderbergh. No, generally. nor before. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it uh, seems like it may have been a different director, possibly. And then they took the script and then maybe Soderbergh did an uncredited rewrite on it or something. Just, I think Atanasio is a, a, a real life crime guy. And I, I just wonder if his appeal to this, because he, I don't know. No. I'd have to sort of look through his filmography. I don't know that he's done any period pieces per se, but I wonder if the appeal to Atanasio would be um, these gritty elements of, um, you know, what Lena had to do, her prostituting herself in this underground market. Uh, and, you know, because I think the Lena character in particular is, is based on, at least loosely, on a real woman, um, mm-hmm. you know, who sold out, uh, you know, sold out her friends and neighbors you know, to the Gestapo and, you know, just did, did all these things. And then just sort of this, this underworld of, you know, black market trade and, 
you know, everything is for sale and, and all these types of things. And maybe this, the smuggling of, uh, scientists, uh, you know, abroad or to get them out. I, th- I wonder if the, the, the crime in the black market, I wonder if that's just sort of the piece that Atanasio is, is attracted to. He's, he did, uh, Donnie Brasco. And as I mentioned, homicide life in the streets and uh, quiz show and all these, you know, all these sort of come from, you know, real life. So I wonder if that's his, his appeal. Possibly. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you can see it as a piece of like, uh, call it historical fiction, mm-hmm. you know, like setting a complete, f- complete f- fictitious narrative in a setting that kind of makes it real. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you could, you could, you could convince yourself that the guy, Emil Brandt or whoever, like, you know, he's just like, maybe he was like a real person or maybe he's just based off of someone like he probably isn't. It's just, it's just a nice coincidence. Mm. I mean, I think there is, there are certain elements in the story that actually you could see that the, who, the guy who, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Canon, right? <clears throat> They, he read quite quite extensively on the subject because you know uh, I think people like Otto Ambrose or Werner von Braun, there are like now there are declassified documents and there is a great book by I think it's called her name's like Annie Annie Jacobson, mm-hmm. Operation Paperclip it's called where she kind of details all that shit that happened like all these people were like Werner von Braun like the father of mo- of of modern sort of space whatever like you know like these people had. Uh, like the, there's there's a there's a there's an uh, off the cuff line I think that Kate it's a Kate Blanchett says that the uh, the guy because she's she's trying to smuggle her husband out of Berlin but then he his name's uh, his his name is on every single piece of document but then they do there's this whole intrigue that the American military wants the guy that he worked who he worked for because um, he's like the big mastermind of the rocketry or whatever, but he's, but they want, but, the, but then if the guy's, oh, Kate Blanchett's husband, um, it implicates him by, um, I don't know, by association almost. Right. So, but then there's this sort of off the cuff line that, oh, the, the guy had, had people hanged off, uh, outside his window of a crane. And that's something that I think that was attributed to Ferner von Braun or Otto Ambrose, maybe Otto Ambrose. I think it was because the I think Otto Ambrose had a was actually tried in Nuremberg based on shit like this. Like they were just hanging slave slave, slave laborers like this, just so ridiculous shit. Yeah, so I think it's it, this maybe what what kind of just drove these people kind of towards the story that you know there are these elements that kind of make it real. They grant mm-hmm. they grant us in just stark realism. So it's it's a, it's a, it's an extremely well researched story, and then it's just these nuances are kind of woven in these like off the cuff, offhand lines of dialogue that mean absolutely nothing to anyone who's who's not invested in what's outside the story. So on this, this is sort of, and this is probably where I disconnect because I'm I'm not I'm I'm not following this i'm i'm not invested in this per se so on the plot so there are there are nazi scientists that are being traded to the u.s this is part of the potsdam conference apparently. no that's no that's not the that part not. of potsdam no this is this is covert shit that's happening potsdam so, conference is about redrawing just, lines. just the boundaries just, just redrawing po- the boundaries yes that's just that's basically just partitioning europe into sectors right that's okay. Potsdam conference, and, and, and see and seeing how penalized Berlin's going to be, like, like Germany's going to be for the war. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty much. It's pretty much this spoils of war, um, figuring out 
And it's essentially, you know, the Potsdam Conference was essentially only only to establish where East ends and West begins, because you kind of had to uh, come to an understanding with this guy called Stalin, who just had 50 million men just sitting there, <laughs> just waiting, or and maybe not 50, but a lot of men, right? Just because he, you know, when and, you think about and, it, you know, and won you know, the war for them as well. Exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> this is something that you know in the West is not really spoken about very often. As in, like, well, the reason why Berlin was was such a shit show is because Stalin got there first. That's kind of like, um, yeah. yeah, Americans didn't get them in time. So if you look at the map of Europe, like West West Germany ended, there was East Germany, and Berlin was kind of like in the middle of East Germany because like. Russians just went way further than just Berlin. Um, so Potsdam Conference is just redrawing boundaries. It's just partitioning Europe into spheres of influence, right? What's happening underneath is they American um, intelligence and Russian intelligence, they know that R- Nazis were up to no good. Like they, well, Because someone invented V2 rockets. Someone invented Sarin and Tabun, like nerve agents. Someone invented this, that, and the other. Some like they, they had all this sort of weird weird research that they were working on. They had these so mad scientists working on working for them. And then you have to kind of do something with either you kinda of go and try them for war crimes and then have them executed, which would have been the right thing to do, or secretly ship them away. And then have them work for you. That was the Operation Paperclip, or in the film they call it Operation Overcast. Uh, I'm just going to say uh, Jack Parsons, who was an occultist, is the guy who did a lot of the early rocket stuff, and he was American and had nothing to do with the Nazis at all, and was an avid yeah. anti-Nazi. <clears throat> so yeah, but then like you had you had people like Werner von Braun, or like if you look at like like these sort of. In like when they had these uh, Apollo missions or Gemini missions or Mercury missions, when you had all these sort of you know directors in NASA, these these were all Germans, and these yeah. were not just Germans; these were SS officers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of how they got in America. They were just smuggled out of Germany on yeah. fake papers. Yeah. So the the good German. This is background, and it's background on top of bracket background. Yes. Further to that, this is taking place in a broken city. Uh, Berlin, where you have citizens that are doing whatever they can to survive, even still, even after the war is, mm-hmm. where, is where the war is over. Uh, Lena's prostituting well, herself. We, we should say the war is wearing down. I mean, they're still at war with Japan. They haven't, they haven't bombed Japan yeah. yet. I mean, True. War in Europe. True. That's war finished. in Europe is over. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> so, but anyway, what I'm ultimately getting at is the this is a, a very layered and full full background um wh- why should i care about any of this through these characters this is what i struggled about uh struggled with uh in in watching this like all these pieces are here i'm more interested in this this actual history than i am in the way that it's it's given to me here i guess so you know as great as this this history lesson is and is and yes it's all in here in little nuggets here there and everywhere but one of you even said it itself it's just it's off to the side and if you get it, great. It's it's added value. But you know, if you don't get it, or if you're not totally into it, then you know it, that info comes and goes with with other info. Um, does it? So you guys are telling me this this resonates with you? How so? And talk about that. Well, I mean, I I, I just like that sort of world of Berlin after the war. Everyone's just kind of stabbing each other in the back. I just find it fascinating. Little 
world to inhabit for an hour and a half. I mean, there's there for me there are a few things to it. There's this. It's a fascinating world to kind of just get immersed in. Um, on top of this, I think it's also part of the experiment because I think there's footage from like Berlin after the war. And then this is again, like this is why I me- mentioned the foreign affair because this is a film that Billy Wilder went to Berlin and filmed mm-hmm. it on location in the rubbles of Berlin, right? Um, so you can actually, you know, on which makes it fascinating on the, in its own right because there's this rom-com <laughs> happening and there are people in the background who just eat wallpaper because there's literally nothing there right um the wallpaper they find on the ground by the way because the buildings don't exist Uh, but anyway so there's this part and then for for me you i could uh, i could concede that maybe you can kind of get lost in this or get overwhelmed by this there's this sort of onslaught of information i'm not sure what to follow fair enough but then I can see this. Okay, it's easy for me, um, even just to disregard the history and then just see it through the eyes of George Clooney's character, uh, Jake Geismer, right? Because he has no idea what's happening in there either. So you're kind of just on on like you're kind of he's your conduit to this world. So you kind of just learn about what's happening through him. So you you can just about pick up the scraps of information and just get and just get invested in the mood. And I think you'd be fine, as long as the uh, the scraps of information don't distract you. Is that what's happened? Yeah, I, I think I'm distracted. But further further to that, on this business of riding Clooney's coattails, like this this is a the structure of this plot is it's broken into three pieces. There are three acts. The first act is narrated, and I would say largely the protagonist is Tully, the Tobey Maguire character. The second act, which I'd say is about 45 minutes or so, is introduced with a narration from Clooney's character, uh, Jake Geismer. And then we sort of follow him around. And then the final act is introduced by a narration from uh, Lena, Kate Blanchett. And so I would even sort of say, and all, well, I guess totally dies, but uh, Blanchett and Clooney are there throughout. But but still, it's it's sort of this broken up structure so I, I don't feel necessarily that Clooney's my man. Like, I feel like I should be following him. and But he's where I start to tune out. I am all aboard for this in the Tobey Maguire, the first 30, 35 minutes. I think that this is fascinating and everything is working. Um, but then it's just when whenever Maguire passes the baton on to uh, Clooney to take the narrative from there, it just it sort of gets clunky and, and sort of confusing for me. I would be very curious to see that's how the book is or not. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, because I, 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 I haven't read the book, but I've seen the book, and the book's fairly thick, like 500, 400, 500 page book. It's just mm-hmm. a pretty slim, you know, one hundred and seven minute film. Um, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be surprised that if the book doesn't. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if the book includes a lot of backstories, a lot of sort yeah. of flashbacks to yeah. the past. And yeah. so you get to know what happened in the past. Like you'll get like chapters upon chapters about like, you know, what's happened in the factory under the mountain and whatever, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. And for me, I think <clears throat> that, that I would probably benefit from that if this were a little bit more, uh, more whole as, as it is. I feel that I'm, I'm getting little chunks. I'm, 
I'm following who's who is this uh, Russian guy that Clooney goes to Sikorsky. visit? <laughs> yeah, like, but who and why? And I'm not 100 percent sure on the motives, like with with Leland Orser. So some of the Americans want to prosecute the uh, the Germans, and some of the some of the Americans want to trade them, you know, f- with with the Russians or use them sort of as as a bargaining chip. You know, we get the we get the we get the bomb makers and the rocket scientists and you guys get Poland type of thing like that's mentioned at at one point. No, yeah, it's so still. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just a nice line, but I think mm-hmm. it, the idea is that they are both competing for the same stuff. Like the guy, the Russian guy, tells him, you know, oh well, you're interested in him. Like oh, you said because he name drops this this guy's name and he just pretends he doesn't know who he is, and it turns out that he he knows because they're all after the same people. It's just Russians don't really. Uh, and he mentions this himself, like, we just pack up entire factories and send, ship, ship them to Moscow, right? That's just, they don't really hide this, that they do mm. it, right? So, and we're, meanwhile, the Americans are, like, playing the good guy. Because, you know, like, it would, they would, it would make them look bad if, they, if, they, if everybody knew that they're shipping out <laughs> Nazis to America and giving them, and essentially just exonerating them, giving them lives, houses, millions of dollars. It's fantastic, you know. But on the actual voice, I think, I wouldn't be surprised if the book is also written from these three perspectives. It's just part one, there's your Tully, there's part two, there's your uh, Jake, and then part three, there's Lena, right? It makes sense to me because the kind of voice jumps into these other people exactly where it needs as in like Tully introduces Jake to you so that you kind of get a little you, you get slightly ahead of him so that generates a little bit more suspense and then he introduces Lena so Jake introduces Lena to you again and then as and then also kind of just get a little bit ahead of everything but then just about when you need to learn more or you think you want to learn more about her she gives you the information because there's certain things that Jake won't know because he's not in her head, and I think that's the perspective of the of the story is that like you're never you're never being told a story from a point of view of like the omniscient God, right? Mm-hmm. So there is always things that the narrator doesn't know. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's maybe a derivative of the fact that this may be just how the book is written. But I, I I'm I'm only speculating because I haven't read the book, but it kind of feels like this is something that you you just see in a book adaptation right uh so is this like a unique piece or that that you find is special about this film or because in a way i find this this goes from a murder mystery into an intrigue into and then the final act is the the third man sort of coming across harry lime so to speak and spending Mm -hmm. time in the sewers um and the three parts they don't necessarily go in sync Oh, yeah. no, they don't go in sync, but for me, they kind of flow into one another quite quite well. I don't even mm-hmm. pay attention to the fact that I only understand that it's like I'm now in a spy intrigue right when I'm in it. So it's not like I don't notice the transitions because I'm maybe I'm just compelled by the story because I think I'm sold on the story. Like mm-hmm. I, I know you clearly wasn't wearing. So, so I'm just that, for me, this doesn't really bother me. If that makes mm-hmm. any sense. What am I missing? Enjoyment. <laughs> Get Unf- real. <laughs> Unfold your arms, Burroughs. Stop being so cranky. <laughs> but, but well, is it? 
because the characters don't do it for me anyway. But let's talk about Tobey Maguire because there's a guy. I think that this could oh, be this one is to get real. <laughs> this is this could be one of this guy's best performances. Like I sort of like him as Spider Man, but I think he's fantastic. Here. Oh yeah, he's, and like he's, I say, he's fantastic in this. You guys he, like he's him su- here? He's such a slime. He's so slimy. It's great. I don't. I mean, maybe this is maybe he's just being himself because I think he's just an asshole just in real life, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's that um, film Molly's Game where the actor is based off Tobey Maguire. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm just like he's the one person whom I don't buy because maybe I've I've had a historic problems with Tobey Maguire. I can't really buy him very well because he kind of always sounds just like he's just taking the piss a little bit, like when. In that doggy style sequence that you just so beautifully brought to the table, Randy. You're I was welcome. just thinking to myself, like, why am I, why am I seeing this? <laughs> I, I think it's <laughs> whose idea front, was it? I think Soderbergh. Divine. This is, this is front and center. The stuff that <laughs> that uh, Curtis and Carol Reed and everyone else from the era in the Hollywood system they they couldn't do this stuff, and I, I think oh, this okay. is sort of thrown right away in, in for the audience to. To take hold of Michael Curtis okay, was always. I'm, I'm ha- oh, I want to. What I want him is is someone is to film someone doggy style having sex swear with, words and doggy with a, style with an unconscious victim. <laughs> okay, I found out something very very interesting about this. Okay, so it was Soderbergh's project that mm-hmm. is confirmed now. Um, okay, he basically <laughs> went to Warner's with it and was like. We can do it live action or animated. Oh, should have gone to Spielberg with it. <laughs> Jesus. Or it's going to be Tintin 10 years yes. earlier. It's, it's going to be Beowulf. Um, <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, yeah, which Oof. is, and it was like. Frame Tobey Maguire. We finally gave one of the options of either an animated film, a black and white live action film, shot as a classic 1940s film would have been. Which is really not fair. Like often, them the gun or the knife, they went with the live action. I mean, that's bizarre. Me, I could see this as like a rotoscoped, a scanner darkly sort of. <laughs> well, well, he he produced that at the, around the same time. Yeah, that's a section eight. That's a section yeah. eight film. Yeah. So, I don't know if it. I don't know. I I like it the way it is, as in, as a live action with these of these sort of like washed out so gel. So filters and whatnot. I kind of like it like that. I think it's a, it was a good idea to do a movie like this. So I'm happy they didn't do it in animation. Well, you know, also, I mean, I think the you know the whole notion is like some Casablanca ripoff is is you know at least with Casablanca, kind of good triumphs over evil, and this is like everyone is just equally evil and corrupt. Well, yeah, but that's kind of noir, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and Casablanca kind of what it is. And Casablanca yeah. is not a noir. Though it looks and smells like one, it's not. Mm-hmm. No, no, exactly. Like yeah. Casa, Casablanca wears noir clothes, but it's it's kind of like a a melodrama mm-hmm. in a in a trench coat, right? <clears throat> um yeah, so do you think that this that this film is somewhat pessimistic or is just taking the material and sort of sticking with with the material? It's not necessarily a pessimistic or noir I think it's just as view. pessimistic as the as the book is right like I would yeah. I would assume the book is like the ending alone it kind of just says like well here's this woman who just sent a bunch of Jews to death and it just like waves her off to to the sunset <laughs> it's just like you have a good life now in America bye <laughs> it's just what it, 
it is pessimistic, yes. <laughs> and this ending... This, this ending... Spoiler from the good German, by the way, sorry. Yeah. But for me, this this ending is something like... So she, she gives this reveal that, yep, I gave up. I think she gave up 12 family friends, you know, Jews to the Gestapo. This really doesn't surprise me or this 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 doesn't really hit with any oomph for me because people were doing everything to stay alive like you know she basically was a normal citizen then she ended up well she was a jew herself herself. and and she was a jew herself um yeah that's kind of what makes it extra cruel right it's it still doesn't it still doesn't strike me because people are doing everything to to survive here and and you know the the worst of humanity is coming out of these situations. I think this was meant Just to a comment in itself, right? Right. If this doesn't surprise you, like what kind of a world are you observing, right? Maybe it's one I'm just not vested in to the you know to the the any point that nothing is going to make me care at this this late this late in the game. Uh, I, I don't know, but that that <clears throat> didn't that didn't shock me. You know, this conversation and talking about sort of the the, the realities of of Germany We're not at the time. This, and that, are we? No, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, but you know, in maybe I'm just desensitized to bad things happening in film, and this because I'm I'm not on board with the characters and not not into it. This this last revelation, which as we're talking about it sort of academically looking at the history books and saying like this 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 was a hellscape and this shit happened and people did terrible things this impacts me more as a person looking at that as, than it did in this film i i just honestly i see an overacting cape Blanchett delivering this line and it's like it doesn't really phase I me mean, and i feel on, it should accents spot on she's really good in it she's really good no she's not overacting she's she's just I th- I'm pretty sure that Soderbergh just the only thing he he told her was like I'm making a, a noir film from the 40s. Think about yourself, about like the way you think about like I don't know Marilyn Dietrich, and she's like game on. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I I think that he's well he he did he, he approached the actors and he said that he wants them to elevate their acting and sort of you know act in that sort of stagey style that you get in the 1940s. Um, you know, a little bit more artifice and and just, you know, go for those types of moments. And Kate Blanchett said, well, there's all these weird little moments in there where we do these actions and they don't feel real or authentic when we're doing them, but they're, they look good because they sort of fit in the era. But I guess my piece is that I just, I, I find Kate Blanchett is just doing an accent and it's, it's just... Oh, come Don Cheadle should have just taken lessons from her dialect coach about how to do an accent just by the a, way just I'm by the way her german accent is fantastic great i, I just <laughs> all i see is an actress i know from other places doing an accent and what's i it's just it's just standing out as this is part of the experiment and that's all i'm getting is that this this is this is the front, this is the experiment, and this is what we're doing and how we're doing it, and go. And this is what we get, and nothing's really working because all these details on the periphery are supposed to be the main story, but they're details on the periphery, and no one's dragging me through it. And sort of I'm the only person ahead. in the world who just doesn't like I can see I can I can see like Kate Blanchett disappear into this character a little bit more. 
What do you think Ian, of Clooney? What's your yeah. take? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I defend I, Kate. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's very much a dry run for her turn in Nightmare Alley, which I, it's a film I do prefer, and I prefer her, her, her in that. Was <laughs> was has my favorite line of any film that year, which which was, uh, "I'll live." Her last line in it is was just delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like a proper noir from the forties, right? Like that oh, was oh, also yeah. like d- oh. dirty and grimy, and also was was shot in color, and he always wanted to do it in black mm-hmm. and white. There you go. So, so, I, uh, Kate Blanchett's amazing. I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna let this sort of, the slander stand. <laughs> Here, you know. Get real. Get real. Uh, yeah, fair I, enough. I, I will and, go out on a limb and say I prefer her in this in this film than Tall. Ooh, I haven't seen Tar yet, but I have it queued up. Hopefully this It's weekend. a good film, but I'm not yeah. as fond of it. I mean, she doesn't put a German accent for, for it that well. I mean, she, cause she doesn't have to. Well, I mean, almost every film she she's doing an accent because she's Australian. She's, yeah. I mean, she, yeah, yeah. But then she's, she's in certain, in, in here, she's definitely putting on, like, a, like in some films, she, like she's putting on an accent, but it kind of just comes across more like affectations almost, right? Yeah. Because in here, I don't think she she would have the sort of the chops to kind of just do a, a German accent with some kind of personality on top of it. I mean, I I feel like it, it works for me because the accent's pretty spot on. And I guess I would say like this is a film that is supposed to feel like a nineteen forties film, and I guess I just feel the experiment here because I'm not into the story. I don't know who to follow, and like this I'm is having, what you'd get if you if, if you go to Marlena Dietrich in Hollywood. That's what she would sound like. Yeah, and I don't I don't dispute that. I guess I'm just I'm seeing that that there's a there's a, there's an artifice here, and I just I don't care about this character, and I just I see Kate Blanchett doing an accent. Yes, her. good accent. Sorry, yeah, I don't. Total I don't. fucking bullshit. <laughs> should, should I should I should I say what Soderbergh said about? Did you hear the ambulance the pull up? Uh, yeah, if you if you have a note there or something from the mo- Soderbergh, the from movie is set. about blind spots and what Jake refuses to see. Early in the film, he lays out everything that has happened and is going to happen. But after he meets Lena again, he's unable to think clearly anymore. Right, and that's sort of a Casablanca thing too, right? Like the 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 uh, Ingrid Bergman and uh, Bogart sort of meeting, and then Bogart is all sort of messed up. Like it's yeah. I get that, but I don't He's care about anyway. their relationship. So, well, let's talk about the Kloon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> you know how he has his tick when he just shakes, yep. bobs his head. He does it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, the 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 Clooney thing. I don't know if I've ever seen more of the Clooney thing than in. Clooney's work in this, <laughs> but I don't mind it though because for me the the Clooney is he's a conduit. He's a he's a guy whose headspace I'm supposed to invade because I'm supposed to get in this story. So I don't necessarily even notice him. Just the same way I don't notice myself when I'm interacting with the world, right? So I feel like this works for me because he doesn't really bother me that much. Sometimes he does bother me, but not here. I, I can watch Clooney do pretty much anything, even like bad films. He's perfectly good in. So, 
Um, yeah, fair. I guess I might be a little bit of, uh, might have a little bit of Clooney fatigue. Uh, <laughs> after a few soda breaks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After this, like three, three oceans this films is five in a row. And Solaris <laughs> within the last month. So this is, this is a lot. And, and out of sight. Yep. Well, out of sight is just fucking great. Oh yeah, but then see still yeah, like yeah. you see the head bob, and it's just when he knows like <clears throat> this is the head bob of someone who knows who's pretty. <laughs> so you know. And during the same era, Clooney is also it's, teamed with the Coens, and I find the yeah. Coens' use of Clooney fantastic because they use him. They they sort of mock him because in uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, he's always sort of like trying to get food out of his teeth with his tongue. <laughs> and then in Intolerable Cruelty, he's always concerned about his hair. So they turn him well, a well, little well, bit in into Obrower, a farce. In Obro, he's concerned with his hair the whole time. He's got the hair in there. Oh, I'm backwards. I'm backwards. It's Then it's in Intolerable Cruelty yeah. where he's picking his teeth with his tongue. Yeah, I was like, no, it's yeah. Obro. He's got the hair yeah, in Yeah, no, there. you're right. You're right. Um, and uh, The Dapper Dan Man. And Burn After Reading is, is sort of another one where he's made to look <laughs> foolish. So I... And, and, I have an appreciation and, for the Cohen's use and, of Clooney. And Hell Caesar, he's a complete buffoon in that as well. Yeah. Interesting. But so- Soderbergh sees him as the the cool, the rat pack guy, basically. Um, I think they... Ian, do you like him in he? here, will you? No, I think so. Like, I mean, that's how I, I, he largely I, uses him. I mean, I, I like him in it. In it. Um, and, I, and yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's just doing his sort of a Cary Grant sort of... Um, even a little bit of, sort of Joseph Cotton and Third Man type of mm-hmm. thing, you know, which is perfectly, it's always watchable. It fit, yeah, it it fits, and like he's he's got that look. I guess I just, for me, it could very well be the Clooney fatigue because I, I find he doesn't necessarily change too much. He's always like he's Danny Ocean in here, as far as I'm concerned. I don't, I don't see him too differently. Uh, for, for, yeah, because. Yes, because George Clooney is always only just George Clooney, right? Yeah, that's there, kind of what you, that's this, his allure that he has the Cary like Cary Grant was never you know anything else but Cary Grant. He was just hired to be Cary Grant, and he was Cary Grant. So it was like it's a certain caliber of movie stars were, were just like you you hire a personality, you don't hire someone to you know go full full on Daniel Day Lewis and pretend that he's paraplegic or something, right? Yeah, there's there's like two not, kinds of there's the two kind kinds of, of there's two kinds of movie stars that like Tom Cruise, who as great as he is in whatever, he's always Tom Cruise. And I, I would say that this is the, the the Clooney thing. Whereas you get Brad Pitt, I would suggest he's more of type B, where he's a chameleon or at least tries to be a chameleon and yeah. does different things and, and gives dy- dynamic different types of performances each time out and that's probably what he's even looking for a role whereas if you get Clooney you're mostly trying to get you know this pretty star look even though the Coens sort of try to manipulate that for humor purposes a bit um Mm -hmm. so I mean I would say there are three types of movie star there's what you're saying as in like Mm -hmm. you know there's the Clooney you you get a movie star you put him in a in a uniform and what you're selling is your star in a uniform and there's the guy who disappears to the, into the character. And there's this sort of in-betweener. There's the sort of Leo DiCaprio of someone who's still a star. You notice him, but he disappears into characters just as well. It's just, he, he, he makes an effort. He puts on accents. He does he, he, he does interesting things. Oh, well, I would say, um, I'd say with Leo, is he, he's a star. Mm-hmm. He, 
but he and he he can't disappear in characters, but he's a safe he's safe in what he chooses to do. Yes, he knows his limitations, right? And Brad Pitt will will fucking gamble on something and go full out on something if he yeah. really believes it. Yeah. yeah, so like equally, you'll have like your your Al Pacino's and your and Robert De Niro is kind of like the in betweener for me because you never forget you're watching Robert De Niro, right? You're just like, it's just Robert De Niro. It's just like, why yeah. is he driving a taxi? You know, but but then but you know that he's doing something. He's not just being there, right? Meanwhile, someone like Marlon Brando, he's just well. He's, he's he, again. He's trying. He's he's doing something. But no, like later in life, he'll be just like, I don't give a shit. I'm wearing a mobile for this, you know. But but you know, I I feel like Clooney's kind of one of those that he's just. You put him in a in a turtleneck. He's Bruce Wayne. You like he's he's a Barbie doll, a candle. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I, and with Brando, I w- I would say it depends on the era. As well, yeah. I mean, fifties, sixties, seventies, maybe a little bit more. Like the, but it's still like sixties. Like Brando is the stuff that, in, like, stuff like Burn and The Chase. No, no, Burn. Mm-hmm. This is a great film, and One Eye Jacks and stuff like that. It's the stuff that really interests me with him. <clears throat> Not so mm-hmm. much the sort of even the fifties stuff. Those are great and stuff, but I mean, di- different caliber. I think this kind of just. But, but also the thing with Brando is he just after a while did not give a fuck. And just want, oh, yeah. want the money. It comes back to this of the, the what I call this of in betweener sort of category because this in the past would be more of a stage performer. Like Marlon Brando sells himself on stage. Like you see him on in like streetcar named Desire, you feel like this is you know, this is a stage performance. Like you still watch Marlon Brando, but you're watching Marlon Brando doing elevating himself, right? So mm-hmm. I feel like this is a, this is the difference. And I think Clooney just like you hire a persona, you get a persona. And then I think Soderbergh has and and maybe the Coens, they have a knack for for give for for I don't know, either giving him latitude to just be a bit more natural and then just or just f- forcing him into into situations where uh, where where he's a bit funny. But I think so I, I don't mind him here because like as I said, like he's for me he's a conduit for the story because I'm interested invested in the story and I'm invested in the uh, in the conflict and I know like you know like, I don't know you're, you're just a, such a cynic because I see Kate Blanchett's character and she's tragic to me <laughs> and you're just like well sorry. who cares you know everybody I sort that. of am I'm I'm sorry you know I'm open-minded you know I try I try but uh, <laughs> just watches Kate Blanchett just just living with her demons and you just and you're like where's my nah. freakin where's my freakin who gives a shit hold on just, uh, this, just give me two seconds this is just two seconds this is random who gives a shit <laughs> so for, for my next question I have sort of sort of the same response so you can keep it queued up but my next question is Did does you using the, the ambulance pull up or? does using the equipment of the 40s and the techniques of the era how much does it matter here like the incandescent lights the fact that they're not using uh you know hidden lapel mics and uh portable mics they're you know they're using the big boom sticks and they're, they're using all this old tech who cares <laughs> how I, much does it matter I mean, I I personally like the artifice, but I know a lot of people would be really turned off by that. But I also just like very artificial looking films in mm-hmm. that way, not like you know fucking 
the you know also DV nonsense and also digital bullshit. But I do I do quite like matte paintings and real projection. Mm-hmm. Uh, which this is film is like a third of that is the film is we were projection. And a lot of that looks really good. Like, and, and two, there's another piece where the action matches nicely with the archive footage. Like it, it goes, it goes really well. Um, See, it works. Cause I think this is something that I've been thinking about this sort of the magic of movies a lot recently, just how, how it kind of just sells you on believing that this is real but the minute you realize you're in something fake, then it pops, you know. Mm-hmm. As I'm watching this, I I appreciate like wow, like the thoughts I'm having is just like wow, this looks this looks kosher. Like this looks like this like I can I like I don't think academically. I'm just like I'm invested. Like I'm watching the third man or Casablanca, right? And only afterwards, I was like, oh, sure, they really did use this, that, and the other for this that's cool but i never have these moments as i watch this which helps me i'm still i'm always fully invested i don't i i I never withdraw and because the minute you do you realize you're watching a movie and you're no longer in the movie you're in front of the movie and that doesn't work so i think for me he sells it so Mm -hmm. as in the moment i don't care that he's using incandescent lighting or he's i don't know using 32 mil lenses or he's staging in a certain way like Billy Wilder would or whatever like I don't care in the moment like even when he does these sweeping camera moves I like only only tangentially I just think wow that kind of looks a bit of like a Norson Wells move but then I just I'm just invested in the story because I'm like, just hold on George like is it just keep me invested you know like so I, I, I feel this works on 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 the back of that so I don't I don't mind for for me I wonder if he really needed to get, I feel I'm really cranky here. Does he really need to get the incandescent lights? Like, is he just not making work for himself? Do you think he's pretentious? Hmm. Yes, he does. Who gives a shit? (laughs) Maybe to a point, maybe to a point on on this production, you know, like who cares what, how you're recording the sound? Who cares? You know, does, does, is it really, can anyone really tell that you're using the incandescence versus the the tungsten, you know, stage and screen lights? Like, can anyone really tell? Anyway, but the result, the aesthetic, the look of this, this is a gorgeous movie. I will say that. So, but you know, can, did he if, sell it like this? Like, was he going around and telling people? As far as like, I, you know, that we used incandescent lighting. Like, was he going like like this, or is this something that people now apply to this? Like, you know, when you no, hear conversations no. about Barry Lyndon's, just, do you know, this is, has been <laughs> fully out and fully just natural light. I'm like, well, fucking just give well, me a break. I, I think this is what came this. out of the, the, the round of the criticisms, like the round of reviews that it got is, so th- this would have been probably part of the press kits that went around that critics knew about the film. Yeah, probably. And, and from all the interviews, he sees talking all about it and stuff, so. And a lot of the case, stuff, like the rear, okay, well, the rear he... projection, you can tell, and you know, you have the the, the bombed out ceiling, and you can see the mm-hmm. the beautiful sky. Like you can you can tell that this is old Hollywood, uh, you know, style, and you know, and that it's it's done that way. Like it's it's undeniable. <laughs> it's kind of like, and like I know what you mean when some. <clears throat> When you don't get invested in the story, and then on top of this, you hear the filmmaking going like, "Did you hear we shot it on sixteen mil?" <laughs> I'm like, I just "Fucking just." 
But if, you if know, I, I cared about the story, maybe I would have cared. <laughs> but I get it. But, yeah. So Soderbergh, in terms of what I was reading about this, like the way he talks about this film now is one with disappointment, almost like, like his films are his babies, and he's really disappointed that this didn't land with with critics and with with audiences um be, and he he's really disappointed that he didn't make the money back because you know he he felt that warner brothers was really good to him they didn't cause him any grief apparently like they were very supportive on this project and he feel he he felt i found a quote somewhere where he felt bad that you know all basically all the invested money in this would just went away be because Warners was very supportive on this and he doesn't necessarily always have that experience, but he felt that they weren't supportive enough to make enough prints. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they try to sell it. But it's, oh, I know. It's just, I can't, and you know, I have, maybe this is me just cutting him some slack because I feel for him in that way because he 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 knows he's interested in the craft just as much as even more in the story i think more than in the story as well like he sees like this a story is an excuse for him to do something cool mm. and for me that's great you know because like you don't watch a good dar film for the story because you've seen the story like it's a heist film fucking jesus you know it's just out of order like <laughs> so it's equally it's an invitation to be very cynical about this because, you know, like, did you, we get it, it's all in one unbroken take. You know, we get it, it's on 16 mil. Oh, we get it, it's this and that. You know, oh, we get it, or, you know, like the shadows. Mm. You know, like you can, it's so easy to be cynical about it. Because someone putting, is putting themselves out there for it. Like, you, you they're, they're actually just inviting you to criticize the craft. Because the craft is what they're putting front and center in here. Because mm-hmm. the story is the noir story, right? And then, as you said, like, who cares? Like, People are doing this every day in Berlin, <laughs> so so you're cynical about the story already, anyway. So I'm just I just feel sorry for, <laughs> and this is coming from a guy who really loved the underneath. <laughs> sorry, Ian, go ahead. Uh, I think I think in, what, in many ways he just wanted to do a, a sort of remake of the Third Man without having to actually remake the Third Man. Well, that's kind of his MO, right? That's, like he's that's sort he's of doing a thing, remake yeah. of Carnal Knowledge without remaking Carnal Knowledge. Yeah. Ta-da, sex license video tape, right? Yeah, King, King of the Hill is a Spielberg film, <laughs> you know, to a point. So Kafka it is, Kafka is his, him trying to do Brazil. Yes, to a point. it yep. is. Yep. And the trial. But then, yep. but yeah, Brazil. Or like the limey is what? Like Get Carter and fucking Killers, right? Yeah. So that's his MO. It's just like what he's putting forward as as trying to sell you is the craft and people were like, oh, the fucking pretentious. Kimmy <laughs> is him doing a conversation. I haven't seen See, Kimmy yet. Kimmy's really good. Kimmy. Oh, Kimmy is really good. I'm looking forward really? to redoing it. Rewatching oh, it. Yeah. So stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> how does how does she do that? That's a great drying her hands. She, she, she should have had a cat. I don't know why she didn't have a cat. Yeah. Yes, that's a good point, actually. If there's Um, ever someone who would have a cat in her house, it's her. Especially given that she's Catwoman as well. Catwoman that same year, yeah. Um, On uh, Soderbergh's MO, um, this is sort of winding down on questions here, um, but this is something we talked about, I think maybe when we talked about traffic around that, that time a couple months ago, is Soderbergh sort of made this comment somewhere in the 2000s. We're not 100% sure where, but as we're going through his filmography, um, 
his comment about himself sort of seems maybe worthwhile visiting here. He said that he feels his career in his career, he was becoming a bit of a formalist where he just cared all about the form and maybe less so about the stories is where is he here at the end of section eight? Is he clearly a formalist? Is he looking to get away from section eight and just sort of work on his own stories? Where does the good German fit into him being formalism and just caring only about the form? Do we see any difference from the beginning of his career to now? Uh, I mean, I think he, it, I'm thinking about that. Well, well, why don't you say, and I'll, I'll think on it for a second. Mm-hmm. If you two have a comment, you go first and then I'll, I'll think on it. For All second. right. I would say that for, for, I mean, he made this comment before he made it big, right? Or just about as he was making Around it big. Around that time, yeah. Yeah. And then he made, well, that's before Ocean's 13, right? This is, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like at this point, he's already uh, uh, realizing, you know, I kind of like the formal stuff. <laughs> like, I kind of <laughs> like the experiment. You know, as much as like, like stories are cool, but you know, like what I really dig is this, like the innovation or the, the the challenge of doing a movie like this and using the tools of the time. Like it's kind of, you know, so I feel like this, he, not that he ditched the sort of the manifesto of like, I like telling stories too. I just feel like, you know, like, okay, well, he makes a comment and then he makes a bunch of Ocean's 11 and 12 films and he realizes, you know, like I kind of need a break. And I feel like this is something we talked about in Solaris as well. He's still at the top of his career as in like he's still making a lot of money for the studios that he works with. So he still can convince people to give him a shit ton of money to make a, essentially an experiment that otherwise he would have he would have had to just, I don't know, sponsor himself or just mm-hmm. do on cheap, right? So yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I would add this to that. I think that what we're seeing of Soderbergh's career in the 2000s is that, and we've mentioned this before too, he's becoming a steward of cinema in general. He is trying to bring uh, smaller budget films to the mainstream. He is supporting Mm -hmm. other filmmakers. He is trying to bring uh, films like Solaris to the fore for other people to see. Like he's, he's trying to bring in a way Tarkovsky's Solaris forward for mainstream audiences only he's he's better his own better (laughs) only better um so so this is something that you can see if you look at the section eight films and the films that you know that he's engaged in and sponsoring like um good luck good night this is sort of this old style filmmaking of of Clooney and that's you know that's something that they're doing together and and the remakes like it just seems like there's a bunch of remakes in what he's he's doing during this time too so he's he's bringing you know, these films that he likes and he's advocating for them. And, you know, like, uh, so I, I think that there's a, um, he's sort of at the forefront of cinema history sort of as his conduit for the, you know, cinema goers and cinema history class. And he's sort of this go between and, you know, he's, he's a teacher is what he is to, yeah, to a point. Like he's, he's an advocate, he's a teacher. And I see that the good German fits into this, what, what he's doing with Section Eight and with Clooney and well, just well, these I, other elements. I believe around this time is when he asked to commentary for the Third Man, Criterion. Oh, oh I didn't know. I didn't know. That, yeah, I can, I'll check when that came out because he did do the commentary for that. I think with Scott Frank, if I'm not mistaken. 
Uh, let me see when did this come out? Because like in many ways, by the way, like in, in in terms of him being a steward or a or a preacher or a teacher of cinema, he kind of fits into the sort of the mold of like Scorsese is a teacher, right? But Scorsese mm-hmm. doesn't re doesn't re just let you know that he's teaching you. Mm-hmm. He he will just smuggle a scene or two from like this is from Kurosawa, this is from well, no, no, you know actually I would this say, is from uh, Griffith, uh, this uh, is no, from no, something. I, I would say I mean, Martin Scorsese is literally a teacher. It, it, it he is, but in, through his films, he doesn't draw attention to it yeah. to it that much. Yeah, he's, yeah? he's, he's not mm-hmm. like Tarantino who does draw attention. exactly. Right. Tarantino is going to just make make it an an affair like attention, sailors. I'm going to perform a teaching act, okay? This is a movie yes. I really like, and this is a, st- a scene I'm stealing, and I'm happy about it, right? Meanwhile, Soderbergh's kind of doing a similar act, as in, like, attention, everyone, I'm making a movie like, <laughs> like you know, like, like this. Yeah. Like, I'm making a Mike Nichols film. Pay attention. Enjoy, <laughs> right? yeah. This is how a Mike Nichols movie is put together without having Mike Nichols in a room. Right? <laughs> so you know that's kind of yeah. how I see it. <clears throat> and, and and yes, so, the third yeah. the third man criterion of his commentary came out in two thousand seven. Cool, just I want to see that. I first name Justin, man. last name Time. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, so it, it was it was him and yeah. Tony Gilroy did the commentary together. That makes and, sense. <laughs> yeah, and see, there are these names whose careers he's also you know sponsoring, like Nolan and Gilroy. And did he? Did he? Did he um, but t- did Tony Gilroy? Uh, which which one of the Gilroys did Michael Clayton? Tony wasn't Tony. It? I think was it Tony? Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Was it a yeah. Section Eight film? Please tell me. It was a I, I, I believe film. it was Michael not. Clayton was. There uh, you go. Just a second. I, I think it wasn't for some reason. I think it was Michael Clayton was Section Eight. <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah. makes sense. I mean, it yeah, does, like if you, it does, but yeah. I, I, I had a f- feeling it was it for some odd reason. But. Here's here's another one that fits into what we're talking about. Far from Heaven, Douglas Sirk Appreciation Month, right there. So, yeah. Well, also, that was Section Eight. What's his name? Todd Haynes. Haynes yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the earliest one of those I think he did uh, was not Section Eight, but it was back in the nineties. Is a film called Suture. Do you know that one? It's a bit bit like seconds. Sure, I've heard of it. Okay, it's it's a bit like seconds, but it's like a racial angle. It actually has um, Dennis Halsberg, who was in Far from Heaven. It was one of his first films, and it's Scott McGee. Owen was the guy's name. Um, Scott McGee, he and um, but that was one. I think that was the first film Soderbergh lent his name to. Okay, and and actually, cool. like that he produced, right? No, no, I think, mm-hmm. no. I think they made it, and he saw it like Sundance, and you know, said presented by Stephen Soderbergh. Okay, and that that's worth checking out, actually. Cool, and I, 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 I know he's really into all all those sort of conspiracy paranoid thrillers from the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think he's still a formalist. Just to kind of just ring it back, yeah. <laughs> I think he's still very much like that's he like he'd like to tell you like oh I'd like for him just like oh, I'd like to tell stories. Almost kind of looks like he's you know it's an interesting adventure for him because it, eventually he will have to just go back to the core of what he, to his comfort zone. I think his comfort zone is sort of the sort of the new wave deconstructionist sort of filmmaking of just taking a 
piece of genre or taking a film and doing it himself as a challenge, right? Mm. What and I, working with actors and letting them riff a bit. And like, what I would say is that's true, but his best films are when he has a very good, strong storyline. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, totally agree. However, if you if you look at, if you look at his you know if you look at his career, what he likes doing, it even like these the movies that he I feel like he likes making the most are movies that no one really cares about, like. You could feel like how much fun he had making Bubble, or, um, or like I don't know, the, the, uh, the girlfriend experiment, Kafka, right? Or the girlfriend experience, like. And well, I think I think he hated making Kafka in the end. I think he. I think I'm not sure if he hated making I, Kafka. I think I think he was. I think it was fascinating by the idea of doing it. I think the process of doing it may have been a bit of a like for for young Steve Soderbergh was just like this is a bit much, and I think it. I think his films are like his babies that if they're not well received, then he kills them. He feels hurt, yes. right? The underneath into the bag, Kafka into the river. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> and the good German, like, yeah, they didn't, they didn't have a chance. It almost feels like they're That's not like his babies. Misery. They're like dumps. He takes, it's just like <laughs> flush, <laughs> forget it. Uh, and then just like, did I make a movie like The Underneath? I don't know. I mean, I mean, there's been like talk for years of this Triterium bot set. It's a, such a sadness. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, there's been years of this Triterium bot set that he's been threatening for like a decade at this point, which is like uh, Kafka with the recut, which is all dubbed mm-hmm. in German. Mm-hmm. Full frontal. I think Bubble is in that. He's, yep. He got the rights yeah, back. All the so, teeny weeny The ones. Underneath. No, no, yeah. uh, underneath on King of the Hill Blu-ray. That's yeah, right. yeah, but then it's only a DVD quality film, right? No, I think it's, it's in this box set, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's in... We looked at this a few months ago. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's in the King of the Hill set. Yeah, it kind of feels like it, like it rings a bell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. King of the, they released King of the Hill, and as a bonus feature, they have the underneath. With, 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 mm-hmm. I mentioned this. There's a great interview with him where he's he just shits on the underneath the whole time. It's great. Yeah, it's Schizopolis part of the box set that's supposed to come out. What I think, I think so. It, was, it seemed to me it was all the the little Soderbergs. Yeah, it's all the yeah. ones he owns. I think now or has yeah, some he was, ownership. He was stumping for them at TIFF a couple of years ago. Is this one of those like these sort of empty promises? Like, oh, I, which one <laughs> I'm I'm going to have on my shelf first, the Abyss or this? Right, it could it, be exactly it's, that. It's it's definitely his equivalent to that. Um, <laughs> But it was, it was a great thing about the Kafka recut. He's just like, I, I got a big bag of weed and I just smoked it and yes. and just recut the whole thing. <laughs> and you might like it, you might not, you probably won't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. All right, my last question for you guys, and it's so Ocean's Thirteen. I think is the the year after this, and this sort of becomes the the end of section eight um are Soderbergh and Clooney would you call them like sort of a classic collaborative pair what does what did one do for the other um how did they benefit one another just sort of find that some some thoughts on their working relationship because I don't think they've worked together since section eight at least not on a you know not fully on a project um I mean I'm sure that the you know still good mates and stuff and there's no that. Oh, I'm sure they're still buddies. 
but I don't, I don't think they've worked on anything since. And this is my way just of, you know, abusing my role as host to avoid talking about the actual film that we're supposed to be talking about. I mean, I don't think he, they have a, have a relationship like, I don't know, Olivier Assayas has with Kristen Stewart or something like that, right? Uh, like the, or DiCaprio and Scorsese or something. I mean, DiCaprio, like Scorsese just has, like, has, has these sort of errors because he's like older than time, right? <laughs> but, so, you know, he had, has this relationship with, with, with De Niro and Pesci and whatnot, right? But I, I just feel like he, Soderbergh is one of those guys. He doesn't, like, he, we talked about this as well, that he does, he doesn't really interfere with people. So he just kind of lets them be natural. And I think he just, He's one of the few filmmakers who kind of gets Clooney to, for the most part, drop his shit to stop bobbing his head too much. Like sometimes he does, but but he he just feels like he's he, you're just hanging out with George Clooney. Not you're not George Clooney, George Clooney, not George Clooney the movie star George Clooney. If that makes any but, sense. But at the same right? time, he's the guy who made him into George Clooney movie star without sight. Uh, yeah. I mean, at this time, you could argue that he was already kind of big anyway. I mean, I mean, I mean he was, but he hadn't had he had transitioned to movie star yet. Yes, but then, like, if you look at okay, he he did that, but then he Clooney goes elsewhere, and then he's movie star Clooney, and then for but the way I kind of see him in Soderbergh films, he's he feels kind of natural. Yeah, he's different when he works with Coens. I think that's Randy would. Put it very well. He's or, just or with Rodriguez, son from Dust to Dawn. Uh, yeah, mm. I think for the Coens are I think I think I think more directorially a little bit. Um, I think they're a bit stricter, right? Like they will tell you what they want. They will kind of guide you. Oh, through, yeah. through what they from, want. So from, they will from, get you from, like from, from what I gather, you don't fuck with the Coens script. At yeah, all. they they like their storyboards. Yeah, but then they will tell Rigidly. you. They will guide. So so they will get Brad Pitt to look like. To have to to put on a character that he will, you would not see anywhere else but in a Cohen's film, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And he will just ne- ne- never ne- never be the same. So I think they they have this sort of knack of getting the Clooney the movie star to be a bit of a buffoon, a bit of a a bit of a fuck up, or a bit of a something, right? So they will just have put a spin on him. Meanwhile, I think Soderbergh just leaves him alone and he just hangs out with <clears throat> George. He, you you get to be with George for a for, yeah. And he just happens to wear a uniform. <laughs> I, I, I would suggest, I think, Ian, you said this, that Soderbergh made him. Um, I would sort of say that as well. He was a, you know, he was a leading man. But with Ocean's Eleven, <clears throat> I think he became like one of the first rate A-listers. And, you know, I would say that he just sort of has this decade where, you know, that mattered. Because then sort of the star system, who cares about a star anymore? Who cares about Tom Hanks or Will Smith or anyone else? That that sort of ended um, he kind of made Brad Pitt as well. He did sort of make Brad Pitt because they were leading men before, but they wouldn't necessarily be the guys to open movies in the stratosphere. Those That was reserved for uh, Will Smith, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise. Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, yeah. Uh, Bruce Willis had his, yeah, had his time in the 90s. And did you say Tom Hanks? You did say Tom Hanks. I did say Tom Hanks. Julia Roberts right around this time as well. Um, like there's a handful of Robin Williams. There's a few of those guys that could open a film. Brad Pitt and Clooney couldn't like uh, Perfect Storm was a big hit, but that was like 
that was the basically a twister knockoff in a way, right? It's a, it was a special effects driven hit. Um, so, but I would say Ocean's Eleven turned Clooney and Pitt into those types of leading men. And I wonder if Soderbergh's influence of let's do cool movies that, that filtered into both of their psyches. If you look at their careers, they, they spent, and Matt Damon, throw him in there. They've spent the last 20 years trying to make cool films that are somewhere between an indie hit and, you know, a big, a big blockbuster. Um, whereas, you know, Affleck wasn't really in on this just sort of as a comparison piece because he was doing the Armageddons and, you know, the Daredevils. Like he was just going for the, the sort of the studio directed thing. But Matt Damon. And then, and then occasionally did a Kevin Smith film on the side. And the occasional yeah. thing for their buddies. Yeah, that that type of thing. And that's all really cool. Um, I, I think that Soderbergh sort of infused this idea with some people, you know, within the Hollywood system. Because I think you look at like 10 or 15 years, the awards contenders were these 20, 30 million dollar budget things like The Descendants. And like these these films that were sort of cool, sort of a little different. And they weren't just humdrum Hollywood claptrap. There was something potentially special about it. And I think that's sort of the investment that Soderbergh put into section eight and, and probably rubbed off on Clooney. That's what Clooney seems to have tried ever since with Smokehouse. You know, that's the type of projects that he, I I would say also Brad Pitt with uh, plan B. Yeah. Mm hundred percent. Like your money balls and your babbles and like Brad Pitt was involved with, any one of a number of best picture nominees for over the last 20 years, you know, 12 years so. a slave was a plan B film. Blonde. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. hundred um, percent. So anyway, I, I wonder if this goes to the Soderbergh mentality that anyway, that's what I would sort of add to the discussion <clears throat> is that those section eight years were really valuable and influential on a number of, you know, stars of, of the time where they seem to want to focus on smaller, cooler films and try to make them marketable, you know, because you could argue that that's what uh, Damon has done with a lot of his career too. Well, I would also say, I think also just given the times of the Iraq war and everything going on, they wanted to make smart, intelligent, grown-up movies with something to say that were commercial. Mm-hmm. In in a way, like the good German kind of fits in the zeitgeist as well. Because yeah. I think when was the green zone? Like 2008? Something like that, 2009 maybe. Uh, yes, around there. Something yeah. like that. And then I think maybe it was a, a maybe a little bit a few years too late because I think that was the accusation for the green grass films. It's like, like who cares now about the <laughs> weapons of mass mm-hmm. destruction? Like we've been there, right? But the this conversation is like why? Like the sort of the dark side of being a good guy in a war so to speak or just maybe like the, the challenging the, the the notion of america being the world police you know yeah and, and I, mm-hmm. I would say Clooney is more was more on is at that point was trying to make a more explicit political statement with his movies because you have like syriana syriana yeah michael mm-hmm. clayton good night and good luck um all section eight oh yeah all mm-hmm. section eight yeah um it fits mm-hmm it's amazing. I don't know why you don't like it. Fuck's sake. Did you hear the ambulance pull up? <laughs> yeah, sorry, boys. Uh, it's just not there. Anyway, Get the, real. Does this take us to our 
our uh, final thoughts. Do you guys have anything else? Any other talking points on this? Uh, I think the score is fantastic by Thomas Newman. Oh, thank you. Yes, I would agree with that. Thomas Newman, yeah. Yes. Yep. So good. Yeah. Who's not divine? Uh, who's not a Soderbergh regular? No. I don't. I don't th- he didn't do a King of the Hill, did he? Uh, I think almost all of them is all Cliff Martinez. Yeah, I think you're right. All of uh, them. I think he, it becomes a bit patchy because have we spoken about this recently? I don't. I don't know who did the. I don't remember off 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 the top of my head who did the uh, Oceans film. I was going to say Oceans was someone else too. You know who did the Oceans films? You look up. Oceans, Someone's look now up. screaming into their phone. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you idiots! <laughs> this is. Yeah, I think like King of the Hill may not have been. No, it's not. No, let me see. No, I think it was him. It was Cliff Martinez. I think so. Yep, King of the Hill was Cliff Martinez. And David Holmes was Ocean's Eleven. Okay. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts, guys. Star rating and final thoughts. Who wants to go first? I would probably give it a four. I would say um, if if you like the third man and, you know, sort of and stuff, the Carol Reed films of that time, like um, The Man Between, which is also set in Berlin around the same time, um, you'll probably have some fun with it. Uh, or you may end up like Randy absolutely despise it yeah a cynical crusty ding dong old canadian (laughs) the most negative canadian this side of mississippi (laughs) (laughs) what a disappointment yeah it's a such a sadness it's the crankiest bitterest canadian since ryan reynolds Jacob, what did you think of this (laughs) I gave it four and a half before. I say I'm I'm gonna stick with it because it's a it's a very solid movie. I really like it, and I really like it on kind of both ends of the spectrum as a formalist experiment in making a forties movie with tits and <laughs> weird instance of <laughs> sex that's going to make an appearance in three and a half minutes or so, <clears throat> and uh, and as a story. That's compelling. It's a it's a kind of a marriage of it's it's again it's forties film that's kind of trying to kind of do a lot as in like a noir film with a spy film and something else as well. But it's kind of a bit darker than you'd normally see it in the forties. Oh, actually, the person we mentioned is it's it's really a Fritz Lang film, to be honest. It kind of is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, like a hangman, hangman also die, and all of the sort of anti Nazi films he was doing in the forties. Yeah, and the, totally. And the way it's shot is very Fritz Langy. Five stars mm-hmm. is what it is. <laughs> no, it's, just, it, 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 it's 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 a great film. I like it. And also, if you're if you're into that shit, and then if you're into the his, history part of this, if you're a bit of a nut, because I I have a thing for for, for history as well. And whenever I kind of find an opportunity, I'll go and research a little bit on the side and kind of find this this bit of. Post World War II history, fascinating. It's phenomenal. Go and what? Go and read the um, um, Operation Paperclip book. It's amazing. But you know, four and a half out of five. Divine. Cool for me. Is this an uncut gem? I don't know. Maybe it's not for me. Two and a half stars. I really get real. 
I appreciate this. It's a gorgeous movie, but I just, I, I don't feel once, once our darling Tully dies. The film I, gets he, better. I he know. He passes the baton <laughs> narratively off to Clooney, who's just f- sort of fumbling it and just sort of being himself. And I don't see anything else really in it and a character to follow. And I just, I can't get into it. Sorry, guys. Is That's there, me. Is there a doctor around? <laughs> Top three moments or elements of this film. Ian, what have you got? Uh, my. Uh, well, um, one of the moments that is absolutely mind blown is that shot when they have the chase for the, for the crowd, and then it pans out near the end after after, mm-hmm. after the husband gets killed, and then she, mm-hmm. she gets you know gets sharp and she just lies on top of him, and, 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 just... and then they just they go like underneath the the, the feet and then to, to the sky. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing shot. Uh, I would say. Um, Toby McGuire, I mean, just seeing him trying to get out of the Spider-Man, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. being known as Spider-Man and trying to play mm-hmm. a real sort of scoundrel, which he's which he's kind of did later on with Babylon, and and that's about it really, with him trying to play kind of against type, um, mm-hmm. and also um, I also love the um, the the guy who plays the disabled guy who to- toby um early on is the shopkeeper he, yeah he's great yeah. i can't remember I, I know i've seen him and stuff but he was he was great and and i also i also i also quite enjoy ben wishaw but it's not ben wishaw. No, 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 no no and i i quite enjoyed the bit where he's like don't jew me on the money or whatever and and then they play mm-hmm. and they play like the very dramatic music kind of make it very mm-hmm. 40s like the very like, sort of like sinister like oh he's actually really a baddie sort of music yeah it's great great stuff and then he dies Jakob I've got okay with the shopkeeper by the way just a special mention is that when, whenever you, of, this is these are mo- motifs that you can easily just either dismiss or just miss and when he says well you know oh well they were they were make they're doing these experiments where they're trying to transplant bones into people. They failed mm-hmm. and just like realized the guy doesn't have legs because they mm-hmm. failed, you yeah. know. But then the the just don't do me on the price line I wrote down because again this is I know this is picked up from a book right, but this is this is the the idea of like encapsulating quite a lot into a simple line I really like because if you think about we're we're in the direct aftermath of World War Two. Holocaust has just come to a close, and then people are trying to kind of wrestle with what happened to to you know the proverbial six million Jews, probably more than that. But you know, and then the anti-Semitism still alive and fucking well. Yeah, because you're still using good guys. You're, yeah. Those are the good guys, and yeah. the the, guy, the good guys using this as a figure of speech just because it, it just rolls off the tongue for him. Right, mm-hmm. so you can you can read into this one line, especially in the context of the conversation with a guy who survived a Nazi concentration camp and Nazi experimentation at the hands of some fucking butcher. This is this and, to me. This is and he's great. trying to get you know a passport for his Nazi girlfriend to get out of the country. Yes, yes, exactly. So yeah. if if you read into the nuance of what's hidden behind this line, it's fantastic. It's it's amazing. 
Randy. Get real. You know, <laughs> this thing. Hey, I've, got- I'm all in for all the Tobey Maguire stuff. <laughs> this is what you're getting out of this. <laughs> uh, okay, I've got the uh, I survived speech when Kate Blanchett kind of just uh, uh, just explain her explains herself again. So much baked into this conversation, I really love it. And then just on the visuals, I kind of had to um, just make a bit of a point and pick something that would just. Uh, be a stand-in for the entirety of almost this, the Orson Welles-esque cinematography because there's quite a lot of it. And now that you mentioned Fritz Lang, also this as well. But the sewer sequence, mm-hmm. when she goes and meets her husband, holy shit, like this is staged so well. I could watch it any day and I'd be just as mesmerized. Fantastic. You know? It's great. Yeah, that, 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 would, that was, I almost, I almost said that. Get real, exactly. <laughs> cool. All right. Find three now. <laughs> honorable mention. I, actually, I have I have more on my tops than my bottoms. Anyway, uh, honorable mention: Toby Toby McGuire beating up George Clooney. And just because it's unrealistic, because he's just a scrawny little kid. No, it's it's a cool scene, and everything involved with Toby <laughs> McGuire being edgy is cool. And maybe there's a certain amount of symbolism here because. He's giving him the baton. He's whipping him with the baton, the narrative baton that George Clooney should have taken and and run with, and I feel didn't. Anyway, um, that's a great little moment. Number three, the shot that uh, you guys were just talking about. It's the the third man sewer scene. It's during Lena's voiceover, so the start <clears throat> of the third segment, where it really, really becomes um, the third man in my view, because not just the look of the sewer, but also this is. Uh, the Emil character is sort of like Harry Lyme in a way. Just gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. Um, number two, there's a really nice shot I, I liked, and it's uh, George Clooney is, he's on our uh, steps or something, and the the shot is looking up to him on the steps, and you've got the blasted hole, and you've got the, the composite of the sky. And it's just a gorgeous shot, and it's just sort of an example um, of how beautiful this film is. There's a ton of moments like that. This is is truly a gorgeous film. Totally will give it that. And number Two and a half one, out of five, eh? Number one, Tobey Maguire's playing against type. His whole half hour of screen time from his intro on, the sex, the swearing, the Jew line, the violence. This is just great. This sucks me in. And it's of it's and it's right away too where he's he's swearing and you know you're right instantly you're thrown up against this idea that this is feels like a 1940s film but the language is already raw and what's this sex and what's this violence and blood and it's just it's really gripping and for me this opening half hour really works and it's largely because of the Maguire stuff the stuff for him in the role and his performance I think he's great all right bottoms <laughs> boys ian do you want to lead the way i would say it's probably a little too convoluted for its own good but that's also the type of movie it's making it's supposed to be a little convoluted for its own good so that's kind of a half criticism um i would i would like some more of uh of Bu- Bu- bridges he's so great in it he has like what two scenes in it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yep and he, he's he's always, he's always reliable. Um, what else? Um, that's probably about it. 
the top of my head. Um, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I wouldn't, I probably would not have done the whole Casablanca homage at the end because I don't think it was necessary. He, he, mm. I feel this was like a compulsion for him. I gotta do a Casablanca mm. ending for this. It's gonna be totally working against type. It's fantastic. I could see he's doing it. He's putting it together with a hard on. <laughs> because, Probably because I think a massive bonus. I think people focus too much on the sort of Casablanca aspect of it. Although it's like, well, the poster doesn't help either. Right? Yeah, the poster is like the, the poster is a direct reference, and you know it's in it's baked into the business of finding the papers for the <laughs> husband and the ex lover, mm-hmm. and it's 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 there. But yeah, I, I think the more we've talked about this, I think it is a little bit more uh, third man. You know, it's both. It's kind of like. I don't know. For me, it's it's kind of like calling uh, I don't know. Reservoir Dogs is kind of like I don't know. Uh, taking off the pellet one to three because the names are there. Like no, it's all of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a it's a collage. It even has a bit yeah. of um. Uh, what's the the not the Billy Wild film you mentioned, but um, five five, di- five days at Cairo or what, what is it um. What is it's 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 like his second film. Um, the, uh, oh, Billy Wilder's film. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's one set in Cairo. Oh Jesus! Oh, what, this is... I've seen like fifteen of these fuckers. But... <laughs> Five graves to Cairo. Five graves to Cairo. Yeah, there's a bit of that in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same, it's a same era. At 43. Good call. Okay. Where are we? Yeah, good matter. I think so. Get real. Okay. So I've got a few, um, what we uh, started calling them Uncut James type complaints. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um,. I think they're mostly like that because, like, I don't really have massive problems with the film because I kind of like it a lot. So, so, Toby Maguire's death star, just when they turn him around and he. <laughs> nice. So, I've got four things actually. So, another sort of uh, complaint of that, of that kind. Although I'm gonna leave the other complaint of that kind to the okay, never mind. It's a different complaint. Henelor eating ham with her mouth open. She's eating. It's a good ham, you know. Do Do you want to try it? And just fucking Jesus. And just and even Clooney goes like, no ham for me. It's like I, the way you're eating it, it make you you make it sound kosher. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. Um, also Hanelor. Hanelor is, is the best when she uh, go, climbs on the bed, slaps her ass and says, fuck me Dutch. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I just, that's a bit far. And then the furthest this movie goes is, this is the scene that's been mentioned so many times already, but um, it's Tobey Maguire's doggy session. And I don't know what I have more problems with, the fact that this woman looks unconscious. <laughs> Or Toby Maguire's facial expression of <laughs> like he's doing a dance in Spider-Man Three with while fucking clapping cheeks with I hope this this is consensual. 
all I'm saying is this is good, but it doesn't look like it. And then just in the camera, just like moves in on them, this sort of like sweeping move. Like, is Dizzy picking, picking it up from Michael Bay? That's <laughs> just all I'm asking. Horrible moment. <laughs> in the visual of just Tobey Maguire just being in the moment. Gross. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> but it's a memorable one. Yeah, yeah, totally. Forget it. Sets the tone. Three stars. It's like like this. It's like this moment in Desperado when they have this sort of, you know, this the sex in the and then just hard cut to Bucho just fucking a woman just 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 why? (laughs) Jesus, Andy. (laughs) All right, your turn. Uh, so in the end, when Emil and Lena are walking through the crowd, yes, nice looking scene, but, and this is sort of our, our uncut gems type of complaint. Everyone's no clapping really, and he's on the way. <laughs> no, no, because it's, it's the, it's the, it's the rally or the parade of the leaders or whatever. Um, no one in the crowd bats an eye with these people with gunshot wounds and bloody shoulders sort of walking through and then they're falling Just- down and. People 14 minutes around. ago, you're like, who cares? Like, these people are doing horrible things. Like, they're just used to it, okay? <laughs> they probably are, to be honest. It's like, oh, someone got shot, whatever. It's Berlin. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's that. <laughs> uh, Forget okay, it, this, Jake. It's Chinatown, okay? This is a weird one. So, Lena comes... His name is Jake, by the way. Yes, right. <laughs> Jake Geismer. All right, Lena comes home at one point. <laughs> He's like Chinatown, actually, when you think about it. Oh, my God. (laughs) Lena comes home at one point, and uh, Jake is there waiting for her. And she talks to him for a couple seconds. She lights the stove, puts the kettle on the burner to boil, and then goes to bed. (laughs) That was odd. This is how you start fires. Like, a a, a friend of mine almost burned her house down. She... She what she she put some rice on, water rice went went for a nap and then what what woke her up was the uh, fireman who broke the door down. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And it's That's right and here. Just like, what not to do? And she goes like, "What's happening? Hey. What's happening? You're you're just about to die, lady." <laughs> uh, George Clooney in this. Jake Geismer is a journalist. And he never has a pen, never writes anything down. So that just sort of bothered me. Um, and <laughs> it did. And then finally, sorry, George Clooney's character, Jake, like, why should I be interested in him? He's sleepwalking through this. He's he's all over the place. And maybe this is just sort of how the script is disjointed and convoluted in my mind. But but Clooney's not making me interested in all these moving parts. I don't really feel his investigation. I've lost the fact that this was a murder mystery. And there's so many moving parts that I, I just, I see this strictly as a Soderbergh experiment and Clooney's not helping. So I'm going to blame the lead character who should be helping me through this, but isn't. And that's it. Soderbergh's the good German. Yeah, get real shaking his head disappointment at me uh that's fine total fucking bullshit
I'm will, so happy I found this clip. I will strive. <laughs> it's going to be a... I'll strive to get over disappointing you, but if, anyway. If I'm not mistaken, that is from when... That's from the making of Twin Peaks, The Return. Uh, well, this? Yes, that clip. Total fucking bullshit. This is from an interview at the AFI Festival in 2006 or seven when someone asked him about product placement in the movies. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about product placement? Because people do it all the time and he just picks up the microphone and goes like, total fucking bullshit is what I think about it. <laughs> There's a good one where he's um, on one of the making of Twin Peaks, The Return, where, where they're like, we can't get that. It's just like total fucking bullshit or something again. <laughs> I was, th- yeah. There's a, there's a great one where he's making the the oil, and he 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 takes over from the prop department, and he's 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 cursing and complaining about they can't get the consistency of this prop oil correct to sort of uh, pour in the 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 little hole in the forest. Anyway, yeah. Which reminds me now, I have to cranky go on Lynch YouTube. is great. I have to go on YouTube and find. Um, I always forget his name. Jesus Christ. He's this like longtime collaborator and then they are oh, Christ. Angelo Badalamente? No, actor. Jesus. He was in Eraser. Kyle McLaughlin? No. Oh Jack Jack Nance. Nance. Jack Nance. I wanna find a cliff. There's a fish in the percolator. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, to throw you off guard every now and again with it. No. <laughs> uh right. The good German. It's not really streaming anywhere that i could find in any jurisdiction it's available total fucking bullshit that's what i was <laughs> it's available it's but, available to rent everywhere but, and you can get it on dvd for very cheap um, it's a very very cheap dvd i bought it for two pounds fifty brand new shipped there you go but it's like yeah. a thai import so you never know what you're getting no 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 i i had a thai import this is a british <laughs> ebay purchase is there a blu-ray release of this i couldn't nope I didn't think so. I couldn't find evidence of one. Is this, is this only a it. big box set that he's been threatening? No, it's not. No, right? no, I don't think so. No, it seemed to me that that was just earlier, earlier ones. Uh, anyway, you can find us, the Uncut Gems crew, at our website, www.uncutgemspodcast.com, where you will find all of our stuff. So there's two years of episodes on there. There are 50 Patreon conversations. Uh, so there's lots of good stuff. Check that out. Um, Ian, where can the good people find you and uh, your stuff? Psychotroniccinema.com, Psychotronic Cinema on Twitter, and I also have Letterbots under Seconds 23. But I think if you just search Ian Schultz, you'll find me on any of them. Cool. Jakob? Well, you can find me at Talk About Film on Twitter, Jakob Flash Letterbox, Flash on Film.com, ClapperLTD.co.uk as well. Cool. And you can find me, Randy, on Twitter at Randy Burrows, Letterboxd at Bratch7. You can find me on clapperltd.co.uk. And all right, quick final plugs for what's going on on Patreon. Look for our revolutionary June Soderbergh Shallow Dive, uh, which is available next week. That's Che 1 and 2. And watch for our Jurassic Park and Raiders of the Lost Ark tie-in episodes. And Next month, our Soderbergh deep dive on the main show, the first Friday of July, um, is going to be a double bill. 
the girlfriend experience and the informant. Join us next week here on the main show where we'll ease into our Crichton and Spielberg and 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park discussions by talking about one of the early, I suppose, high profile Jurassic Park ripoffs, Carnosaur. So have a great week, everyone. Mm-hmm.